This is Daniel King, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Wellness. Today's guest is Dr. Kevin Sellers. He's a board-certified internal medicine physician, lieutenant colonel, and chief of medical staff for the Air Force. He also serves as a lecturer for the Doctorate of Physical Therapy program at George Fox University in the area of pathophysiology and primary care. It's good to have you on. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I guess the question I want to ask is, like, what kind of medicine do you practice? Well, on the civilian side, I practice internal medicine. Uh, I know internal medicine kind of confuses people. Uh, it's kind of the base of most of what we would consider kind of the heart of medicine, but the general population, it confuses them what it is. Uh, I tell them we're really an adult specialist. Um, we are um, kind of a pediatrician equivalent, but for grownups. Mm. Uh, the other way I, I describe it is we are the generalists of the specialists. So if you think about cardiology, pulmonary medicine, nephrology, endocrinology, these type of specialties, they're all internists who focus on one area. So the general internists basically are doctors who are broadly based in, in um, multiple disciplinaries of, of, of medicine. Uh, what you'll see mostly now, uh, if you think about what hospital doctors, who they are, they're primarily internal medicine doctors. Mm. And then on the Air Force side, I'm a flight surgeon, so aerospace medicine for, uh, for the Air Force. What made you want to join the Air Force and serve our country that way? You know, that was something that was kind of um, kind of a, a, a burning desire that kind of was in me for a long time. Uh, my father, my uncles, you know, grand, you know, I had people in my family in the past who had served um, uh, in the Army primarily, uh, whether it was in the Guard or some other capacity. And so... Um, I, I believe we live in this amazing and great country, um, and to be able to do something to contribute to preserving the freedoms and securities that we have in this country, and and for years watching young people sacrifice, and then I was on a career path in medicine for many years, uh, which kind of took me away from the ability to participate. Mm. Uh, and when I came to Newburgh, I was practicing traditional internal medicine. At that time, you do outpatient medicine and inpatient medicine, which meant you were on call for the hospital for, you know, every four or five weekends, and your weekend's pretty consumed with that. Uh, and I, my kids were younger, and I didn't really have an opportunity to, like, take away more time uh, to be able to serve. And we've developed full-time hospital doctors here at Newburgh. It opened up my weekends again. It was just one of those, that, that itch I had to scratch. I knew if I had it, I would regret it. So, uh, just a desire to give back to uh, to a country I think is is amazing, and I wanted to be able to um, contribute in some way uh, to preserving those those freedoms and securities. Well, first of all, thank you so much for serving our country. That's uh, an honor to do it. Yeah, I guess the other question I have for you then is: is the type of medicine you practice in internal medicine, and then also being like a flight surgeon and working with the Air Force, and, and you know, is it different? Yeah, they're very different worlds. Um, what I do in the civilian practice is I take care of abnormal pathology mm. in a normal environment. Uh, and in aerospace medicine, I may be taking care of normal physiology, but in an abnormal environment. Mm. 
Um, and that's primarily what I do right now. If I was in a deployed setting, it would be that as well as taking care of abnormal pathology in an abnormal environment. So whatever has to do with aerospace, you know, what, who can be in the air, you know, for example, uh, it's my responsibility to make sure that the pilot is safe to fly. Mm. Um, but if we were sending patients from one place to another, uh, I would need to know what does an open chest wound mean or a head injury mean? Uh, what's the impact of, of the atmosphere or elevation in that condition? Yeah. You know, I think that you mentioned something that I've been interested in, which is pathology, right? I mean, yep. we know our body's supposed to figure out this homeostasis, right? Yep. And when we have pathology changes, and I guess the overarching feeling that I have towards pathology, um, maybe it's a fatal one, is the fact that we're all probably going to see disease or yep. have a family member or even ourselves have a disease process occur in our lives. But I guess, you know... Your viewpoint, I wanted to know what you thought about this idea of resiliency, because you see pathology in lots of different levels, right? From soldiers who are 18 years old, right, yeah. to probably, I don't who's what's your oldest patient you've seen? 108. Yeah. Um, you know, probably something around around that. Yeah. So, I mean, that whole lifespan, right, from 18-year-olds, and you probably see people, you've seen people probably younger than that, to 108, and all different diseases, right? Oh, yeah. And so, your resiliency around that, you know, the attitude towards something bad occurring to you, you know, have you thought about that as you kind of work with people and kind of maybe your viewpoint as a physician of, like, seeing people probably at their sickest point in their lives? Yeah, I think, one, I mean, whenever you lose... When you lose homeostasis, one of three things is going to occur. You're going to have disorder, disease, or death. Um, and it's understanding that we are designed in a way that is not meant to last forever. Mm. Uh, that, that a lack of homeostasis at some point is going to occur. It's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Um, and I think expectations play a lot of this, right? So I, th I think about Marcus Aurelius, who would say, our lives are what our thoughts make it. Um, and so how we perceive um, how we're doing, our expectations, our goals, our desires, how we view that in the beginning will make a big difference on how we will be able to deal with things when they come. Mm. Uh, because something will come, right? And it doesn't have to necessarily be something physiologic. It could be something mental or something emotional. Um, you know, because I think we are, we are physical, mental, emotional, spiritual beings. Mm. And in one of those areas, life is going to throw us a curveball. Um, and it's how we are prepared for when it comes and then what tools we have in being able to handle. This has been one of the great things about what we've done with George Fox with the Behavioral Health Department yeah. is to be able to understand that this is, this is an important aspect of understanding who we are and then equipping people with the tools to be able to have that resiliency. Some people just have... Um, a natural knack for having a mindset that leads them in one direction and other people just don't have those tools, right? Mm -hmm. I, I am not a good carpenter. My grandfather was a contractor. <laughs> I could build anything. You know, my dad was very handy. He, mm -hmm. you know, he did a lot of great stuff and I can kind of get by. My poor son, every generation we're losing, he won't know what to do with a hammer, I'm afraid, right? It's just like, you know, <laughs> you know they, we are just, um, we don't always have those natural skills and, but can we put a tool belt on and start learning the right tools for the right job? Um, you know, uh, I've been in a situation where I needed one tool, I didn't have it, and I used another tool to try to substitute. It doesn't work as well. Yeah. 
mentally and physically, the same thing happens. You know, can we develop tools that will help us in dealing with the things that come when they're not expected? Yeah. I know that we share a patient that we've seen together. And uh, maybe you can kind of share from the biological or from maybe from a physician standpoint, like, you know, this, the, the patient who's given us permission to talk about him, but we'll still yep. will won't use his name just out of respect for him. Right. Because yep. he's in our community. But maybe you could share with us maybe an example of what that looks like, you know, like homeostasis, the disease process, kind of like how, how that looks like and maybe even resiliency around that. Yeah, when you look at certain medical conditions, people get to different places for different reasons. Sometimes we do things that will induce something that will lead to uh, a negative outcome. You know, I mean, it could be alcohol, it could be smoking, uh, it could be, you know, different aspects. Uh, and sometimes we don't necessarily have control over things, mm -hmm. you, such as diabetes, right? I tell people, we don't do things that give ourselves diabetes. This is a common misconception. People think, well, I ate too much, I did this, I have too many sweets, I got diabetes. Mm -hmm. The reality is there is a mechanism of, um, of resistance from the sugars going from the bloodstream out to the other places where it needs to go to be utilized. And we influence it. We, we, we ramp it up or ramp it down, make it better, make it worse, but we don't turn it on or turn it off. We, we understand that process is there, but not the why is it there. Mm -hmm. um, and so something like diabetes or high blood pressure, where the majority of the time it happens and it's what we call idiopathic, right? Uh, right? So the fancy doctor way of saying, you got it, I don't know why. Whereas I tell my patients, if you break down idiopathic, means you know, the doctor's an idiot, patient's pathetic. Between the two of us, we just don't know what's going on, right? <laughs> yeah. And so things like that just happen. And so as a consequence of those things, there's a natural um, impact or demise on, on the body physically. So when you take somebody like our, our shared patient, you know, and he's dealing with certain things that are having a negative influence on his ability to function, mm -hmm in a day-in, day day-out process, it's going to have a negative impact on his ability to function. Um, this particular patient basically um, had to do with weight issues, had to deal with joint issues, had to do with heart and lung issues. Um, and probably for the first many years, um, I, don't, I never saw him walk. Uh, always would come into the office in a wheelchair. Mm. Um, I think a few times they would get him to stand up to be able to examine a few things, but that was about it. You know, it was it was a very difficult life uh, that he was living, and I think it was a lot of physical limitations. But I think it, I, I don't think you can help but have a mental impact on that. Yeah, um, and it has to take a toll. And uh, he was very brave. He was very. Um, tried to be resilient, but he's a good example of where we were not as a male community giving him the tools mm. to be able to deal with it. Um, and so you can only be resilient for so long, yeah. right? Um, there, you know, when the biggest, the biggest limitation is when people lose hope, Yeah, right? There's a, I think Proverbs 13, there's a, there's a verse that says, you know, hope deferred makes the heart sick, mm. right? When we don't have hope, um, that's when we get in trouble, right? Yeah. This is where people end up giving in to substance abuse or alcohol or to, you know, promiscuity or, um, uh, you know, suicide because there, there's nothing left. They're just, they're, we all have this hole in us. Yeah. And we're always constantly trying to figure out how do we fill that void? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I and I'll pick it up from there um, in this in this in this story that or this patient that we share, right? And it's a story 
where when I met um, this couple, um, this gentleman was um, was in a coma, an induced coma. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted me to go in to the hospital there and uh, check on him to see if he was alert and see if he could um, sit up at the edge of the bed. And when I went in there, he was uh, unresponsive to that. I mean, he was obviously alive and they had a ventilator on him. But his wife was in there and she, you could just tell she was by his side the whole time. Oh, yeah. She wasn't going to go home. Right. She was one of those type of yeah. people who's like, I'm here. And I've been in the emergency room and I've been in the ICU where there is no family. They're in there by themselves and not having yeah. any, you know, real, anybody else being there. And in this case, her, the wife was there and um, she was watching me like a hawk while I was like working with the patient. Right. And she was so grateful because I addressed him by his first name. I explained to him what I was going to do. And these are all things I learned, not just in PT school, but because, you know, my grandma who passed away, right? She, I wish that they would have done the same thing, would have treated her not just as a cancer patient, but would have treated her as a human being, right? Yeah. So I'm speaking with him and he's unresponsive, but I'm still trying to find some range or reflexes. I'm about ready to leave and... Um, and uh, the, the the wife says to me, you know, Dr. Kang, thank you so much for treating my my husband like a human. And I just was so moved by that. And uh, I was touching my scrubs. And lo and behold, something I never have, which is my business card. You know, being in private practice, you know, it's like you never have your business card because they're always going to call you for a favor, right? So it's like <laughs> this is the first time I had a business card with yeah. me. I give it to her. And... I, she looks at me and I said to her, look, I work at George Fox University. If he ever wants to walk again, let me know. Yeah. And uh, one year later, they call me and they say to me, hey, the patient's here that you said was ready to walk. And I remember yeah. getting the call from my partner, Lizandre, and, and I said, who? And they're like, yeah, they said his name. And I would tell you, like, it took me back to that um, ICU. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa. So we, I get over there and he's in a wheelchair and he told me what he wanted to accomplish, which is to basically walk up these stairs. And I said, well, can you walk? And he says, no, but my goal is to walk stairs. Yeah. And uh, I said, okay. And I remember his face lit up. The fact that I really believed that he could go ahead and walk these stairs. Yeah. And, you know, the story goes now he's walking. Um, I think he walked into your office. Oh, you know, he's, I haven't seen him in a wheelchair in several years, I think. Yeah. And so he works with a lot of my students now. And uh, I got a call during the summer and he wanted to walk. We got a new building at, at um, the physical therapy department and there's 21 <laughs> stairs. He told me. Yeah. And I get a call from the student. He goes, Dr. King, I need you to be there. And I said, why? He goes, this patient wants to walk 21 stairs. And I said, what? And so we had a program and she was, you know, like, it's kind of like attending, right? She's like trying to convince me it's going to be okay, right? So she's like, this is what he's done. He's walking a mile every day. Like he had, you know, going to the pool. And so I meet him there and he should have seen his face. He looked like Kobe Bryant. He had the Mamba mentality. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to climb up those 21 stairs, right? And I said, okay, let's go. And he, of course, did it. And then when he did that, there's an elevator on the second floor. And I'm thinking to myself, please, God, let him go in the <laughs> elevator because I don't want to go down the stairs. Oh, yeah. So I, I, you should have seen it. I sold it to him, man. I was like, hey, buddy, 
we're going to go walk through this hallway. And there's an elevator right there. And he looked at me. He goes, no, Dr. Kang, I'm going down those stairs. And you should have seen my face. I had the best poker face. I'm like, of course we are. Of course we are. And then we we start heading down and he does it. And he has this new dream of like going on a road trip with us. Because he wants to um, honor his brother who lives down in um, down in Southern California. And, you know, I encourage him to dream. Because I think yeah. in that dreaming comes with hope. And maybe yeah. you can share with me, like, some of the things that you've seen. Because you kind of brought up hope. And I think it's a really big part. Like, working with the military, right? I mean, yeah. you guys get under a lot of stress. And you don't know when that stress is going to be alleviated, right? I mean, it might be a prolonged yeah. period. So I'm sure you guys discuss that as leadership, as you are thinking about, you know, the servicemen who are, are underneath you and thinking about, like, how to help them with resiliency. Yeah, I was speaking of our, of our mutual patient. It was, it was awesome. He showed me the video. Uh, oh, and yeah. um, uh, But this is a good example of, I think, why we need integrated care. Mm. Um, there's only so much time I have to get so much done for each patient. Yeah. Uh, and I could deal with his medical issues, but the reality is he is who he is today. Mm. Uh, and I would say, really, it's like it's like watching a light come on in a dark room. Uh, but not only for him, but for his wife, right? Um, he's actually been able to get his life back and have independence, yeah. uh, which I think has done so much for him physically, but also just as an individual. But it's also given his his wife some life back. Yeah. Uh, right. And so um, it's an amazing thing, but that couldn't have happened in a traditional medical setting. There's no way I'd have time to work on that, uh, work on the the capacity of like just activities of daily living. Mm. It just it just would not happen in the office. Uh, and I think even an outpatient model, uh, I'm not sure it was designed. It, it really was the aspect of giving somebody the belief the hope, then they would have the desire. Because uh, if you believe that you're not going to be able to do something, then you just you will you will be doomed to fail, right? You it's a self fulfilling profo- prophecy. If you say uh, I won't be able to do it, then you won't be able to do it. Yeah. For him to believe that he could and have that encouragement, support, and some of the knowledge and skill cell skill sets and the the support that would be able to provide it to mm-hmm. be able to get there. Um, that's really, I think, what, what you know, it wasn't the medical community. It really was the DPT community, mm-hmm. I think, that gave his life back, which actually then makes it easier for me to do the things I need to do medically. Yeah. Um, in regards to, like, you know, looking at airmen, I mean, we, we all end up facing different stresses at different times. Um, and I think, you know, the best time to plan for that is when you're not in crisis. It's like when I talk to people about like mm. end of life care, which we, we do a lot. And I think we don't do it well enough, to be honest. Uh, but it goes back to what you said is we, we have to, in medicine, I think, have a different approach. We're so busy focusing on pathology, so busy focusing on conditions and disease that I think sometimes the person themselves are sort of lost in this, right? This is an example, like when you're a resident, you're running around the hospital, you're doing sign out. You don't say, you know, um, Mrs. Smith, she's 86, she's a grandma, she's, you know, we say, no, no, uh, congestive heart failure room 202, right? Right. This is, you know, this is, we, we identify people by their condition. And we have to get away from that, right? I'm not interested in medicine because of pathophysiology. It's not really why I wanted to be a doctor. I wasn't interested in medicine itself. Mm. 
medicine is interesting, but what I find fascinating is what do these things mean in how they impact an individual, uh, right? So for me, um, uh, we grew up, uh, I grew up in Clown Falls, uh, uh, had Dr. Jeff Marks, uh, excellent internist, was uh, our family doctor, took care of my grandparents who had a lot of very serious medical problems, especially my grandfather. And it wasn't that he was going to save my grandfather at the very end. My grandfather was very, very sick, had a lot of vascular disease, a lot of things that were happening. And, and, uh, but it was more about the way he interacted with the family, helped us through those things in the process uh, that really interested me in how a person in that position can be of influence to help people as they're going through these things. Mm. It's inevitable we're going to go through something mm -hmm. right, at some point. Mm -hmm. So you look at end-of-life care, and if you look at end-of-life care and have that discussion at the time of end-of-life, that's a terrible time to have that conversation. Yeah, You should have that conversation when you're able to have time to think about it, not be as consumed in the emotional aspect of it. Mm. Uh, it's like filling out a, you know, a living will. Um, you know, I try to tell young people, it's good for you to do it now so you get what you want, but it's also easier on your family. They would know what you want. Mm. Um, which makes it easier for them to go through that process. It's going to be difficult when you deal with that. But if you can share those things before you're at that point. So planning ahead and thinking about what is it that I want and what, how am I going to do different things um, and having that conversation. It's just not a natural conversation. Like you and I, you know, we may have that type of conversation, mm -hmm. but most people will sit down and talk about the what ifs, the bad things, right? Because we see the end product. And so we realize it's coming. How can we talk about that? Um, so having a preparation before you get there is important. So uh, you talk about your, the medical training. I think one of the most stressful things when you become um, a doctor, before you start practicing independently, you go through your internship, you go through your residency. And I can remember that's a very stressful time, right? It's four years of medical school, you slap MD on the end of your name, they throw you into the deep into the pools, like, go, you're the doctor. Yep. It's like, you are not ready. Yeah which is the reason you have the residency is to prepare. Yep. And I remember you're running down the hall and they're screaming, I need Dr. Sellers. And you're like, yeah, where is that guy? And you're like, oh man, that's me. Right. <laughs> and so like when you get to something like a code blue, very, very stressful. When right. you have to, when you have to be the one that runs your first um, code situation, yep. uh, very, very stressful. You need to figure out how do you can be resilient in this. I always tell people that I would tell the interns when I was the chief resident, I'd say the, the first thing you need to do is stop Take your own pulse. Mm. If you're panicked, mm. you know, you're not going to be able to think clearly to help that person. And really in, in a code blue situation, the person's already dead. Mm. You can't make them more dead. Mm. Right. So all you can do is think clearly to try to help get them back. So, um, but you have to think about those situations before you get there, right? You can't like try to figure out what do I do when they code and that's the time to figure it out. No, you need to plan and prepare ahead of time. Same thing with the Air Force, um, you know, or any any military situation. You have yeah. to have a, a plan and a contingency before you go into it, right? The worst time to figure out what you want to do is when it's right upon you. Uh, have a plan. Um, think ahead about those things. But you have to put that in there. That will build an in, a natural resiliency in, in your plan and preparation is when you walk into it with some preparation. Yeah, I like that a lot. You know, I think people don't think about that with uh, medicine or their own health. It's trying to, I mean, they talk about prevention, right? Yeah. But plan is different than prevention. 
right? It can be, it can be right? Yes. I mean, yeah. I hear that a lot. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm trying to prevent it. But do you have a plan if something does occur? Yeah. And it's it's weird because I think naturally I have a tendency to not want to have a plan. I do a lot of prevention. And I think my story is a little different that way. Is the fact that we had really poor health care growing up. And, and uh, it was just because of the situation of being an immigrant. Uh, we didn't really have that much resources. Um, we didn't have the ability to go get medicine. So we did a lot of um, traditional medicines. Um, and you probably see that a lot, right? Holistic medicine at yeah. that time. And what, And I really didn't want to go into anything medicine. I mean, my goal was to try to be as social and kind to people and try to figure out how to finance that. Yeah. I've always been that way. And what turned me on to physical therapy was that there's a role of kind of like prevention, planning up front, but also in the back end, right? Because like yeah. when you see somebody and I was always interested in doing that. And I like the idea of planning, you know, ahead and doing those things. Now, I guess this, the next question follow up then, maybe the, the bipolar of that is, what are some of the habits you see in people? that in, in their healthcare that you recognize that kind of creeps up on them or surprises them or makes them less resilient, right? Like what are some of the habits you see in people that they're kind of shocked, right? Like something happened to them or catches them off guard. And so it kind of may, it might make them catastrophize or have this other experience, right? That you see with people, maybe even be fearful. Yeah, it's there, I mean, it's a wide, uh, very, uh, um, um, various experiences uh, from different people. Um, I was just thinking about the saying that, uh, I, I, something, something like this is like a, a dream without a plan is just a wish. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, but I think that what'll happen with a lot of people, especially I think as you are younger, there's a sense of inevitability, you know, of, uh, invincibility that you, uh, you're not going to have to deal with anything. I, right? so, I still feel that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, that, that feeling has gone for me. I'm already experiencing the, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, as I'm out running with my, my fitness test that's for the right. Air Force, I'm definitely you're, feeling. You're that, looking uh, good, man. Yeah. You're looking good. No, no, <laughs> COVID, COVID's been rough. Uh, yeah, uh, without doing our fitness test for about a year. Right. Um, but as you you sort of look at that and say, well, I don't really need to deal with this now. I'm not feeling the effects. Um, you know, I, I've always said if if people just did just some general healthy lifestyle things, right? We got some exercise, we got some decent sleep, we didn't drink to excess, we didn't smoke. There, there's a lot of things I would not even be involved in. Mm. Uh, and um, it is it is definitely better to work on the prevention side of it, but you have to have a plan for that. Yeah. Um, and the you know, I think of a patient that I have, um, I spoke with somebody yesterday and she was worried about her kidney function. Um, and the aspect of like how the blood pressure may be affecting the kidneys and yes, it's probably having an impact on it. But I have a young patient who is very, very young, um, had very high uncontrolled blood pressure for many years, but had no symptoms. This is what we call the silent killer, right? It doesn't give you mm -hmm. a warning. doesn't tell you it's a problem. If a person rips the rotator cuff apart, yep. I don't have to tell them you should come see me. Mm -hmm. They're like, this hurts. I can't do this. Do something about it. Right. right. But a blood pressure is an example where it gives you no symptoms. Right. Um, it's rare. That it can, but it's rare that it will. Uh, and he really didn't seek care until his, he, I saw him and his kidneys were basically already failing. And now he's having to get on dialysis and um, hopefully we'll get a transplant. Uh, and he's otherwise healthy enough that he would do well if he gets his transplant. But mm. 
but we ignore things um, if we're not feeling an immediate mm-hmm. need, right? And mm-hmm. that's kind of our, I think our society is like, um, you know, financially, I'll get it now, I'll pay for it later, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to worry about that right now, um, you know, versus, you know, I got cash to pay for this versus, oh, I can make the payment, so I'll just get all the stuff I want and I'll worry about the consequences down the road. We do that medically with our healthcare. Uh, I always tell people, you, you really shouldn't treat your, your bodies the way I treat my cars. Now, sadly, I shouldn't tell myself, <laughs> but I will. Uh, I love Volkswagen Passat, love little car, right? It's a little older car, but every time I would turn right, it would go tick, 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 tick. I'd turn left, it'd be fine, right? And mm-hmm. the car drove, and I was like, ah, I'm busy. I don't have enough time. If I go to the mechanic, he's going to tell me it's all, the, it's going to cost me a fortune. It's like, ah, I don't have the time to. Well, I did that for about a year, and I finally took it in. And they're like, well, yeah, it would have been about a $200 job, but um, a strut or something like that. Right. Don't, don't ask me about cars. I don't know anything about them. But, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it turned out I had to replace the whole axle. Wow. Because I had something that was a little early problem I could have taken care of if I had addressed it, but I just ignored it. Yeah. And I think the worst habit people have is that they they don't plan, and they just have a tendency to ignore and put things off. Right. Mm. It's like, I don't want to know. And I don't want to deal with it, but you will deal with it. It's just going to be much more difficult to deal with. I tell people that there's really very few things that if we catch them early, we can't have a major impact. So I think of cancer in particular. There are very few rare cancers that honestly, it doesn't matter when you catch them, the prognosis is going to be very poor. Mm. But with today's uh, medical advances and therapies, um, the majority of cancers are not a death sentence. We have amazing ways of dealing with cancer, but the sooner I can catch it, yeah. the better those options become. So rather than waiting, um, you know, going in and being more proactive and finding out something bad and finding out early, uh, it's going to be better. But the worst habits I think people have is that they they just they don't think about it. If I if I don't think about it, it's not there. Well, that's not the case, and then they just don't make the effort to put in that early detection, you know, so the habits are just don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Don't plan for it. And then it will sneak up on them. Yeah. Do you think like a universal health plan, like kind of what the uh, airmen get, right? Because they, they all get healthcare, right? What they do is just, they have TRICARE, which is a, it's, it's like, it's just another type of insurance. Got it. Uh, So it's, um, and and not all airmen have it. Uh, Mm. So an example I'm a traditional reservist, so there's differences between active duty mm-hmm. uh, and say, um, you know, the Air Guard or the um, the traditional um, reservist, which is um, where we you know we'll spend time um, during the month, um, but we're not there every day. Um, those younger members all have access to healthcare, but they're pretty healthy, and it's surprising how often they'll have something going on. And I'll tell them because as as a Traditional reservist physician, mm-hmm. when I go down and I'm seeing airmen, I'm not actually practicing medicine. I'm not their doctor. I'm more of an occupational doctor. I am reviewing their health care to make sure that they are good to be in the Air Force and mm-hmm. that they can do their job. But I don't provide their care. And a lot of these young airmen will have something going on. I'm like, well, you need to go see a doctor and get this checked out and get this taken care of. Well, I don't have a doctor. Well, okay, well, can you get, well, I don't have insurance. Well, they have access to insurance. They're just not paying for it. Right. So it's their option whether they have it or not. Um, uh, so um, 
obviously I think it's good for all people to have a plan. I always tell people who are young and healthy, it's good to have a doctor for two reasons. Yeah. One, you're healthy. Let's keep you healthy, mm. right? Let's not like like diabetes or high blood pressure or something that can have a significant impact on you down the road. But if we treat it now, we keep it under control. It doesn't have to. And secondly, if you do have something happen, that's not the time you want to try to figure out how to get healthcare or get, you know, if you want somebody who is already um, there that you can call and see. Um, uh, so I think that um, it's good for everybody to have healthcare. Um, there are a lot of questions about, you know, what, what can you, what's the best way to provide that? Yeah. Uh, personally, I think if more systems were like Providence, where they're more about taking care of the community. Yeah. Um, um, I think we pay way more in charity care than we would in taxes <laughs> if we were not a, a, a nonprofit organization. Um, but, you know, there's limitations. And I think this is where the, the debate comes in. It's very complex. Yeah. Um, you know, healthcare can give you uh, access to care. It can give you affordability of care or it can give you quality of care. And any system that exists can give you two out of those three, but there's no system to give you all three. Yeah. So then the question, the debate becomes which... What is it that we want? Do we mm -hmm. want access and quality, uh, but not affordability? Do we want affordability? You know, th that's the question of where do we make this? And we're in a funny system because we're kind of in a hybrid model of government healthcare mm -hmm. and independent healthcare. And so you can make debates on the on the the benefits of, of different ones. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, there is no one system anywhere in the world yep. that provides all the things that we want. Right. Um, you know. I think you make such a great point about planning. I mean, that's where I've been at and I love, you know, your, you know, your discussion around that. And I guess as we're thinking about, you know, closing out this podcast, I just want to ask you a practical question. There's some people in here who are thinking to themselves probably like, I never go see my doctor or they might say, I don't got a doctor or I don't have a plan. And maybe the plan is, is just to first, you know, find insurance or see a physician, right? Or see a provider. Yeah. And so I guess the question I have to try to give a, like a next step, because with this podcast, I really had two visions is to educate and to inspire. And I believe yeah. that all underlying that will be some, some faith component, right? Because that's who we are here. Yeah. So lastly, I just wanted to ask you, like, if you're looking for a physician or a provider, like what kind of characteristics and skills are you, would you give advice to, you know, when they're thinking about doing that, like yeah. what would you be looking at or what would you give advice for our listeners or viewers to say, yeah, you know what, I'm going to get a provider and these are some, some things that I should probably look for. Yeah. And I think this is, this is really probably the most important thing when you find a provider is that you find the right provider for you. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I think having somebody as board certified, which is kind of standard for today's um, uh, medical communities, like for you can't work at province, you can't work at most institutions if you're not board certified. Okay. It just says there's a there's a level of competency that has been demonstrated within your yep. um, within your specialty. Um, but I think the the most important thing is that you feel a connection, right? The most important thing when I, when I see a patient. Mm -hmm. I would say 85% of any decision I make regarding the healthcare is strictly based on the conversation that I have with them. Wow. So if you give people enough time, yep. which is a challenge in today's medical economics, you know, give them enough time to, to 
have the conversation, let them speak with you, um, and you know the right questions to ask, then when you go do an exam or you do laboratory tests or some type of investigations, those things really should be more confirming what you suspect based on your conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and I was trained in medical school that if you have spoken with the patient and you don't have an idea of what the problem is by the time you're done talking, you haven't spoke to them long enough, <laughs> right? So, so I don't expect my patients to ever know medicine better than I know medicine. Yeah. But I can't be so arrogant to think that I'll ever know their body better than they know their body. Right? Yep. It's a partnership. It has to be something that is a back and forth. So the most important aspect for me to provide good care is the patient's willingness yeah. and comfort level in providing me information. Mm. And so when a person doesn't feel that comfort, they will hold back, right? That's just the way we are in any relationship. If we don't feel comfortable, we won't open up. Um, and if you can't open up to your physician, they may be the smartest doctor in the world. They will not provide you good care. Mm. So I always tell people, whether it's me or somebody else, you need to feel comfortable. So I, I, I let my patients, I tell them at the end, I say, if you got questions about me as your provider, yeah. that's fair game, right? You're yep. coming in, it's, it's like an arranged marriage, yep. right? We have a relationship, I'm their doctor, they're my patient, and we don't know each other, right? That The relationship is developed in time. Yeah. And so it's important they feel comfortable. If they don't feel comfortable, then they need to find a different doctor. Because I know I won't provide them good care if they come in and they hold back information. Uh, so finding somebody that you feel comfortable enough to be able to tell them anything you need to tell them, right? Mm. I mean, and there are things that people tell me they would never tell their spouse or anyone else, right? That's, it's a very intimate relationship. So you have to be comfortable. So find the person that you feel like, I'm not going to hold back information. That is the most important advice I can give anybody finding a doctor. And the reality is, it's not, it, it would be unrealistic to think that every doctor is going to fit with every patient. Right. I mean, it's just not the way life is, right? So if you're not comfortable with your provider, find a new doctor. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. You know, I think that, I think that the challenges that we have to try to connect with a doctor might be just the fact that we don't even know where to begin. And I think sometimes the best thing I've noticed is like a word of mouth. It's ask, right, yeah. ask around and ask who, what, you know, who you see, right? Yeah. And I know that's been a really big deal um, as well. Being a physical therapist, I know that's word of mouth is probably one of the best ways, right? Yeah. Well, and I came to Newburgh, actually, um, and I was looking for a pediatrician. Um, I went to the nurses. Mm. Right. Nurses are, you know, especially if nurses that work with doctors, especially when we did hospital work. Right. Nurses are, are a really good resource because nurses get to see how the patients feel about the doctor. Right. And then they get to work with the doctor professionally, see how they treat them. So yep. I always found nurses who work with doctors a very good resource because they see it from two different perspectives. Yep. Um, they can say, oh, that doctor is brilliant. Yeah, he's kind of a jerk. Yeah. But he's really smart, right? Well, okay, is that what you want, right? Uh, sometimes you just want a super smart doctor. Yeah. But I really think, and especially in primary care, uh, you want somebody that you can connect with, right? Yep. I mean, obviously, you want somebody who understands yep. medicine and practices good medicine. Yep. But the reputation gets out there, and that will usually be a good reflection. So I think it's good advice, you know, is, you know, is talking to people who have the experiences to say, yeah, I really like this guy. This is what he did. Or, no, they really dropped the ball. You know, the reality is doctors are, are still people, right? We're not infallible. Everybody's going to make their mistakes. There's going mm -hmm. things are going to happen, right? Yeah. But then even in those cases, how do they handle it? Yep. You know, yep. You know, are they willing to just say, Hey, I, 
this was the wrong combination of medicines. I missed this. Yep. Um, you know, it, it really is about relationships, but um, you know, that will be reflected in the reputation. So, yeah. yeah. So I always say go to nurses if you got a nurse to ask. Yeah. If not, find some other person who's got the connection, um, you know, in healthcare. It's always a good resource. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you for your time coming out and doing this with us. I just want to give you maybe, you know, I guess the doctor's advice. Like, is there any last thoughts that you have about resiliency or planning or, you know, just things that you would want to advise anyone who might be listening today? Yeah, I think the I think that you have to plan for it. Um, the the reality is nobody is immune to it. Um, we're all going to have to face something in our life, and the question is, I think about like uh, resiliency. I think about it as as the way of getting our bounce, right? Mm-hmm. So we're like a ball that gets thrown to the ground, and how um, how we bounce is our resiliency, right? And so if you got a ball that's flat and you throw it on the ground, it's going to splat, it's going to stay there. Mm. A ball that's filled up with air is going to be able to take that impact and then, in a resilient way, bounce back up. Right. And I think for everybody, you have to think about what it is that's going to fill your your ball, so to speak. Where's your air coming from? Right. And we all need something. Yep. Right. I, I, you know, the Simon Garfunkel song, you know, that, you know, I'm a rock, I'm an island, right? Yep. You know, sounds great, right? It's not true. Uh, we're made to be communal. We're, we're made to be in relationship. We're, we are made to learn the humility of being able to be dependent on other people. Mm. But what is it is that what is it that fills your your ball so that you when you hit the ground you have a chance to bounce back up? Yep. Uh, I, an example for me is um, one reason I like to play golf. Like, you know, we can go play, play again too. Yeah, you're good. So, no. You're good. You're a good golfer. I'm <laughs> but, horrible. But when we play, but you know, I was playing the golf with my dad one day mm. and uh, we were just walking on the first tee and my dad made a comment to me. He said, um, you know, when I'm out here, I'm not thinking about the business. He owned, he owned some grocery stores and he was, I'm not thinking about the business. I'm not worrying about mm. the bills and nothing. And I thought about that. And I thought, you know, that's what it is. It's a mental break. Yeah. It's a chance to recharge. You have to figure out how do you recharge? Where do you where do you get filled up again? I see this with caregivers a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Caregivers are giving and giving and giving. And if it's all out and you don't get refilled, you're gonna your tank's gonna run dry. You're yeah. gonna run empty. Yep. What is it that you need to find, right? Is yeah. it is it your is it a spiritual community? Is yeah. it, you know, a time to do certain activity? You know, in the Air Force, we we call this the wingman concept, right? Mm. So when you got planes flying, right? You got you got a plane, but you got a wingman. You got somebody watching your back. Mm-hmm. Um, wingman concept is a, that's, you know, uh, we were talking about before we got on, on the podcast, we we're talking about like the idea of the wingman day and, um, you know, you gotta have somebody that you're watching out for and somebody's watching out for you. Um, mm. so where do you get that? Where do you get filled up? Um, you know, cause it's going to come. Yeah. Um, and so I think thinking about that and what is it that will help you, right? Whether it's, I think meditation, being part of a, a, a spiritual community, uh, having, you know, friends, having people you can rely on you know, so that you will have that ability. Um, uh, but everybody's got to find what that is for them. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. I think that finding something that helps us stay resilient or give us hope is probably one of the most crucial things. I would say that for me, um, I've learned a lot today. 
but I didn't really think about planning the way you do as a physician. Um, it's been really enlightening to me to like think about planning and it kind of takes the fear away um, of, you know, like yeah. stroke, like, you know, m you, my family history of that and a few other things. It just kind of takes the fear away um, to think about the plan. But I also love thinking about healthcare as a community of people who really care about you yeah. versus a place where, you know, you, you're getting, it's costly yeah. or it's, you're being tested and, you know, yeah. you're going to fail and all these things. So I love thinking about community and also including your provider, a physician as like part of that community, someone that's on your team, right? Someone who's yeah. a wingman, who's yeah. going to help you kind of navigate like your healthcare and to help you stay resilient. Another thing that um, I wanted to close with is that there is a thing called a brief resiliency scale. And uh, I was going to have you take it because I think you're probably one okay. of the most resilient people I know, right? So we'll, uh, we'll find out. <laughs> exactly. So, and and again, I think it's funny that you said that because the first question they ask you is, is uh, I tend to bounce back quickly after hard times. That's the number one question. And strongly disagree would be one and then strongly agree was five. And there's just a scale in between, right? And yeah. And I mean, you don't have to answer if you don't want, but I just, you know, it's interesting because I think some people will be like, well, am I resilient? And they can go and do the brief resiliency scale and it helps grade it. Yep. And then the second question was, I have a hard time making it through the stressful events, right? So this is a yep. kind of the opposite, right? And then number three is it, it does not take a long time for me to recover from a stressful event. And it goes on and on and on. So there's six questions yep. and it's just kind of asking you, are you resilient? And I think that, it's good to assess, but it's also good to have a plan of treatment. Well, and I th so this is one of the things with medicine. I always tell young doctors or residents or medical students, I said, because uh, one of the smartest doctors I ever worked with was one of the Harvard guys. And I don't think he was like smart because he was at Harvard. I think he was like the smart guy at Harvard, right? He was over in, he was, when I was in Rhode Island, he was one of our attendings. The guy was just brilliant. And he used to say, no doctor is going to get every diagnosis right the first time, every time, right? It's just not possible, right? It, you're going to have a patient will come in and it could be multiple things that it could be. And you have to think about the possibilities, what we call the differential diagnosis, right. because um, you may have somebody come in and it's day two and they got a cough and it looks like a cold. It actually could be a pneumonia. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't treat it like a pneumonia on day two, mm -hmm. uh, unless there was very specific reasons for that. So I could be wrong. And so the assessment's important, but what's more important is the reassessment. Yeah. So when I tell the patient, you got a cold, this is what's going to do. And in, in seven days, this is what should, but if you're coughing up blood and you got pest, chest pain when you breathe and yep. you're spiking high fevers and uh, okay, that probably wasn't a cold, right? Yeah. I was probably wrong on day two. So the reassessment is actually more important than right. the assessment. Did it do what I think? And I think the resiliency plan is good. But what I would say is it needs to be reassessed. So mm. I give an example. Um, mm. About 10 years ago, I went through some very, very mentally and emotionally difficult times. Mm. Probably the lowest point of my life. Wow. Um, you know, it was just a lot of things happening. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I had a lot on my plate. And I would say if you gave me that resiliency test then, I would score very differently than I would have before or since then. Yeah. And so I think, you know, doing it, looking at it, it's important, but life throws curveballs. Mm. You know, you, you get an unexpected death in the family. Yeah. Right? I, uh, you know, I think the most tragic thing in life is losing a child. Mm. I, I can't think of anything more dramatic or traumatic than that. And I've had many patients who have to live through that. 
people get unexpected diagnoses of cancer or, you know, um, something just mentally or emotionally has, has affected them. Um, that will change. And so um, wherever we are, it doesn't mean that's where we're going to stay. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's important to say, yes, this is a downtime. Doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I hear you saying is that adjustments are important too. Yep. You know, and then reassessing and those, reassessing. those, uh, those yep. adjustments. Right. right. And those changes that we see. So yeah, no, there's a lot of, a lot of things, a lot of things for us to think about, but I just have loved this conversation. And just, again, want to thank you for this time. Happy to be here. All right. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to George Fox Talks on Apple, Spotify, or whatever you're streaming on. Check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash George Fox Talks. <laughs>